always depended on the kindness of strangers. All right, so he's not a regular rat or, or even a super rat. He's a scared little mouse, that's all. Ha, I had two years to grow claws, Mother. Jungle Ray! Hello, and welcome to a special Halloween episode of The Real Woman, a podcast about all things cinematic. I am your host, Emmanuel Perryman. My guest today is actually a returning guest, Jessica Rainey. If you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend going back to my first episode with Jessica, where we discuss both the films and novels of The Collector and Silence of the Lambs. Jessica is an author in the noir-slash-horror genre, and she has written an article titled A History of Horror, The Classic Universal Monsters for House of Stitched Magazine, which provides the basis of this episode. Welcome back, Jessica. I'm back! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, And I love that this was your idea, that you contacted me and said, hey, I'm doing this article, let's talk about it. Yeah, well, I mean, we had talked before, when we, when we did the Silence of the Lambs episode, we were kind of up in the air, did we want to do Universal Monsters, or did we want to do the Silence of the Lambs? And you're like, you know, I've I've not seen one about the Silence of the Lambs, let's, get, let's dig into that, because you also had the Collector in mind, so we did that, but it was kind of always in my conscience of, like, I wanted to do this, um, but I... Also, I mean, there's nobody I'd rather talk movies with, so it seems like no-brainer to me. So. I'm honored. Well, so before we delve into the movies and Universal, the studio that spawned these films, I'd like to start with the horror genre itself. When I was growing up, I always thought of horror as something you sort of touched a toe into during Halloween or maybe at a slumber party, but that it was really only like the brave goth or alt kids who watch those movies all the time, and I was not one of those kids. So I definitely considered it a niche genre, but you say in your article that, in fact, it's not niche. Uh, So can you talk a little bit about the genre itself, and why do people love horror movies? Yeah, I mean, uh, when I was researching the article, I I thought about... Horror is really popular, and not just at Halloween. Um, I I do a lot of horror shows and conventions because I have books and, you know, I exhibit at these things, and they're extremely popular, these these conventions. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people come to it um, to meet horror celebrities and, and horror merchandise and, you know, buy horror books and everything. So it's a huge, a huge industry. And, you know, horror movies come out all the time. And if you're an aficionado, like, you can... You know, now you can get streaming services like Shudder that are specifically horror. So Netflix is full of horror. So is Hulu. So you, you and that's year round. It's not just at Halloween that this stuff is coming out. So you wonder like, okay, well, why are we making horror movies so much? I mean, one reason people make them is because people have always loved horror. You know, it's some of the earliest stories. If you think about campfire stories and things that were told orally and even mythology, um, you know, Greek mythology is Egyptian mythology. All of it is full of monsters and scary things. 
because people had to explain scary things in the world and what better way than to explain it with a monster right right so they've always we've always had scary stories and we enjoy that fear it's a safe fear to have like when you're reading a story about a you know vampire or a werewolf or even like a boogeyman or whatever it's a safe fear it's a way for you to deal with fear in a really safe and not harming way um, so I think people just love to be scared. It's good for you. It's cathartic. And there's some people who don't like it, of course. But in general, I think people just really enjoy that. And one thing that really struck me was, okay, we're making all these horror movies. Why are we doing it? Do people really love them that much? And they do because horror movies are almost guaranteed to make money because they don't cost that much to make usually. And you you make money um, at least like their budget back and stuff. So. I'm, I'm sure that's going to like, you could be like, okay, well, this one didn't make this much money back. But bang for your buck, horror movie is the, the, you know, the most likely to return a profit on your investment that you make, which says a lot about it, that it's that popular and that dependable. So, I mean, I thought that was really interesting when I was reading up on it. Yeah, I mean, if I think of like movie series that keep going, I mean, Halloween has been going for like... 50 years yeah no um halloween there's this is october october what the 12th right now we're recording this halloween kills the latest in that franchise comes out on friday and i will be going to see it sunday afternoon probably so i'm right there for it even though it's ridiculous and how many times is michael myers gonna die i mean this is like i don't even know how many times but i'm here for it i love it um the same way with all of those movies they're they're just fun and I would say I wasn't such a fan of the slasher film. Um, I'm much more a monster fan, which is great because this is, you know, universal monsters are my jam. Yeah. Believe it or not, when I was a kid, my parents wouldn't let me watch horror movies. I was not allowed. Um, I watched, I did watch The Silence of the Lambs in the 90s when it came out, but that's because my mom thought it was like a police thing. Like she didn't know it was really horror because it's kind of in that mixed genre. Um, but I had never seen Friday the 13th, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw. I'd never seen any of that until I went away to college and there was nobody to tell me I couldn't see it anymore. And then when I could see it, I just didn't want to stop watching it. But one movie that my mom was okay with us watching was the 1931 Dracula. <laughs> so, and she called it the scariest movie she's ever seen in her entire life. Okay. Well, I mean, even at like eight years old, I was not scared by that movie, but I was enthralled by it. Yeah. You know, I, I Getting into Universal, Universal is actually, like, the oldest American studio right now. It is. And they've really, talk about making money, they've really cashed in on the horror genre, and they did it early on. Uh, what were some of their earliest horror movies, and how did that sort of come about? Yeah, I mean, you really don't think about it, but Universal had Lon Chaney under contract. So, you know, Lon Chaney, the man of a thousand faces, Phantom of the Opera, right? Like, so they have all this, um, and they were big in the silent era with those horror movies. So that's where we get our start with these um, scary silent films. And uh, I didn't, I didn't actually know that either that Lon Chaney was under contract with them, and then. Um, they wanted him to play Dracula when they when they were like, okay, we're going to do, we moved into talkies now and we're going to do Dracula. And they, you know, the rumor is they wanted him to play it, but he was sick. He was very ill and couldn't do it. And that's how Lugosi came about playing the role. But 
you know, they they have like a long pedigree of horror, um, and and that's really important when you move into where we're at in 1931 when they start making these monster films, right? Uh, in the theatrical production yeah. of Dracula. So he was yeah. acquainted with it. He was, and he knew he could do it, obviously. He was like, yeah. yeah, I do it all the time, every night, so I'm pretty sure I can do this. And he could. I mean, I don't know that the world, like, your brain would be blown up if you tried to accept anybody else in that initial role of it. You know, from the iconic look of Dracula, he is Dracula. And he always was. I mean, even until he died, he kind of, like, rode that that pony until it was unable to be ridden anymore because he died. And I think yeah. he actually was was buried with the cape. I think so too, yeah. I remember reading that. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. for him. That's what he, he, he loved doing. I mean, I don't know. I can't really speak to that. I didn't know the man, but obviously he, he understood how iconic and culturally significant it had to have been, so. Give me some of the background of Universal. How did it, how did it, um, come about this was begun by carl lemley correct yeah carl lemley was the head of the studio so he's this old school guy and um you know i also didn't know that movie studios back in that time um they owned their own theaters so you know now how we have like regal or amc theaters or whatever in the in those days the studio owned them so like mgm owned their own set of studio or own set of theaters Warner Brothers would have owned their own set of theaters. Universal was the only one who didn't because they they were like, we're not into theaters, we're into uh, making movies. So they didn't spend any money in that. And then when um, Lemley let his son take over, Carl Lemley Jr., uh, and I think it was 1928, I'm going to say, he... He kind of wanted to like modernize it, and I know like I am not an expert on on this family, the Lemleys, or anything like that. But Junior is a fascinating character because on the one hand, he looks kind of like an innovator. He's like, no, we're gonna go into the, you know, we're gonna modernize everything. We're gonna figure out how to make a lot of money. But then he's just kind of bad at like budgeting and actually making money. He he has like big dreams, um, and he thinks he has huge pocketbooks but he really doesn't and that's kind of what makes him fascinating to me if I think about these movies would they exist without him no I'm not sure they would and I feel like he was someone who I I kind of I I respect him for I feel like he was someone who really took big swings and sometimes they paid off sometimes they didn't right that's (laughs) life though right that's life but when they paid off they really paid off yeah, and so I think it's really fascinating that he has this reputation. It's like this nepotism. Oh, you got the job because you're the boss's son. Yeah, he did, but he wasn't just sort of like laying around doing nothing and sucking up a paycheck. He was trying to do it. He just wasn't like good at it. <laughs> like he wasn't. He wasn't a businessman. He was like, I think he was kind of like an artist. Yeah. Trying to be a businessman. And, and those two things, not they just don't always work. You know, not everybody's Dolly Parton. Right. So. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Well, so I want to get into... Your article covers a few movies. We're just going to yeah. focus on two of them, uh, two of which happen to actually be my favorites. Uh, the first one is The Invisible Man. Yes. And yes. that stars... Claude Rains in his first role, 
uh, his first American film. I think he'd done a silent British film before that, but mainly he was theater. And this was his first American role. And The Invisible Man is based on a novel by H.G. Wells. The movie was uh, directed by James Whale and stars Claude Rains and a very young Gloria Stewart, who most contemporary audiences know as Elderly Rose from Titanic. Yeah, she drops the giant diamond, yeah. Yes. (laughs) And uh, we have... Henry Travers in this movie, who most people will know as Clarence the Angel from It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, I think he's a little oddly miscast here, but it's fine. Then we have one of the great scream queens, uh, (laughs) Una O'Connor, who can just put out a shriek like no one's business. Yeah, she's an indignant shriek, too. Yes. And then she gets afraid. Oh, yes. She's wonderful. And John Carradine, who most people probably know as the father of the other Carradines. So we have quite the cast. And there were about 12 different scripts. I think even Preston Sturgis wrote a draft. Uh, There are about 12 different scripts before H.G. Wells, who was actually still alive when this was going on. He approved the script. And they uh, initially wanted Karloff for the, for the role, and he turned it down. And then they wanted, uh, I think it was Colin Clive, who had come from Fresh Off of Frankenstein. Yeah, he plays Victor Frankenstein, yep. And he liked it, but he was homesick and wanted to go back to, to Britain. So he left, and so they were, like, really getting down to the wire with finding an actor and I've heard a couple of sort of differing views. Um, some say James Whale was walking by like a recording studio or something and heard um, uh, Claude Rains' voice and was like, that's the guy. Uh, however, the, the, the voice recording that he heard was actually a screen test that he had done that had not gone well. It was a screen test for a movie called A Bill of Divorcement, which actually ended up being Catherine Hepburn's film debut. Um, so he did not get that role because he did not, it did not go well. But, and so they were telling James, well, you can't have this guy. Like, he's not good. And they're like, and his response was, it doesn't matter. Like, we're not going to see him. We just want his voice. The other version I heard was that James Whale actually knew Claude Rains from the London theater, which I tend to believe that he actually already knew of him from the London theater and wanted him uh, uh, for the role because he knew he had such a great voice. So whatever story it is, one's apocryphal, one isn't. um, But whatever the version is, Claude Rains gets the role. And actually told a funny story about how he had been quite pompous when he was in theater about, you know, dignity and he wanted to be, you know, seen as a dignified actor. And then here his first film role, he's covered in bandages and not seen for 98% of the film. Um, And he said, well, that served me right. (laughs) Uh, But, but anyway, 
my question is what why the invisible man like why do you like this movie what about it did you did you connect to well first of all I can't imagine this movie with anybody else but Claude Rains in the role. Um, his voice is absolutely perfect, and that's just one thing about it, you know. So, I think it's also um, this awesome mash of horror and science fiction. You know, you you have that in Frankenstein. Frankenstein is really a science fiction movie that's horrible, um, and I think the you know the Invisible Man is the same way. It's science gone wrong. It's I've you know, I'm trying to do something and I went too far. And I love the concept of that, first of all, because I mean, in my day job, I'm a scientist. So I always kind of feel like I'm one lab accident away from being a supervillain, but that's not really true. But anyway, <laughs> I always like that, right? So I, yeah. I like, I like science in a horror, um, a horror movie. And this is just art. It is, I mean, it's, it's early early special effects i mean if you think about it they haven't been making even talking movies for very long when they make um the invisible man and when you watch it to me the special effects hold up i I don't when i watched it i was like uh this doesn't look hokey to me at all oh not at all um I mean, does it look like hollow man or the current remake of the invisible man of course not but like for an older for a movie in the 1930s it's it's almost like weirdly good the special effects are weird they're better than like 80s movies with special effects in it oh yeah they really are like it's better than parts of star wars i would say where you can clearly see lines and models and things like that it's better than that so it's it's like they used a lot of they, they used all practical effects i really respect that and it's just joyous to watch this character descend into madness and become like a villain he's not a villain when he starts off he's trying to like find a cure for himself he checks himself into this you know in he's like i want to rent this room and he's real you know crappy to everybody he's like you know grumpy and he's he wants to move in and i don't want to be bothered i've got things to do and he's all wrapped up and bandaged up and of course the innkeeper and the people are like what's going on with this so he goes up and does his experiments, but they don't like it. You know, they're nosy and they want to know. And he's taking the serum to become invisible, but it's making him insane. So he's descending into madness, trying to trying to get himself a trying to make himself a cure. He cannot replicate it, and it taps into that idea of like frustration and intellectual frustration, and then like the rage that he's feeling. Um, but this movie villain is like Hannibal Lecter in his joy when he becomes when he embraces the bad he's joyous he is so much fun to watch the same way that Hannibal Lecter is really fun to watch in the silence of the lambs because he's you know well I'm gonna do it now you know he becomes like murderous he he um my favorite scene is when he's hiding in the car and kills his mm-hmm. supposed assistant who's ratted him out to the police I love that part where he kind of this plan comes into fruition and when you watch it Claude Rains is just he's just joyously evil and it's as a horror fan it's so much fun to watch you know it's so crazy because I've seen the movies several times and this time when I watched it it sounds crazy probably but I thought of another movie 
with a maniacal killer. American Psycho. Yeah, Patrick Bateman, for sure. I totally thought of American Psycho in the, as you were saying, the sort of joyous, maniacal way about him and his whole, like, I'm going to kill, you know, a train conductor and a president. I don't care. You know, he's going to kill the highest of the high and who someone who he considers, you know, low, uh, lower class, that distinctions like that don't matter to him. He's going to kill whoever he wants to kill. And I just really got strains of Patrick Bateman in that. Yeah, I would say, you know, American Psycho is um, an interesting movie. <laughs> That's another podcast. But another- yeah, yeah. Well, and I also got the the sort of, which I think are, is in present in both, the very, they're both horror, but there's a very comical side to it. It's very dark comedy. Yeah, uh, they're, they're all, everything... I mean, in my opinion, good horror scares you and it says something about, you know, it reflects society. So, you know, the idea of, you know, that he's invisible and he, you know, he has a lot of power. So this absolute power he has corrupts him. And, it, and that's the idea behind it. And at the time, if you think about the history of the time, that kind of makes some sense. Like, um, you got a lot happening in the world when this movie's made. So thinking about power and more global things, probably people are kind of thinking that way instead of just like compartmentalizing after the depression and okay, we're only worried about the U S but now like the world is a more, you know, you can't once world, once the, you know, the die from world war one is cast, nothing can be undone. It's then it's just a snowball effect of global politics. So I feel like that's kind of a thing with that. James whale is an amazing director. You know, he, He's on on my list here of these Universal. He did like three of them, right? He did uh, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and, and Invisible Man, and all of them are like the highlights of this of this kind of like group of movies for me. But maybe not Frankenstein exactly, but Bride of Frankenstein I loved. So yeah, no, I and I think you touched on something that's important that it's not an accident that most of these horror movies come out in the 30s during the Depression. It's now post-World post War One, and even though the war ended in 1918, certainly many, many, many people alive remember it, were a part of it, were, you know, um, have that common history. And then you have sort of the exuberance of the 20s with ending with the crash, and now we're in the, you know the beginnings of the depression and universal comes out with uh dracula and frankenstein and bride of frankenstein and invisible man um within like a two-year period from 31 to 33 and it pretty much goes on for mo- for most of the 30s and so what is it why why do you think during the 30s when people are literally depressed and the world is involved in a depression you would think that you wouldn't want to see horror like why do you think that was such a pull at that time i think that people horror is a way for you to process feelings i mean good horror is to me so it's a way for you to process trauma and if you think about where the where the world was at after world war one i mean 
World War One was the apocalypse for most people. The advancements in, um, you know, guns and chemical warfare and artillery, you know, that was a bloodbath. So many people died on a scale that the world had never seen before. And so people were reeling from that. And then you had, you know, the influenza pandemic that killed a whole lot of people. So the world is kind of like mired in death. And then you have the depression on top of that. So people have all this trauma that they need to process. And really good horror even, you know, by 1931 standards, I guess, is a way for you to process that fear. It's a way for you to process the feelings that you have. I mean, I just recently, I remember going to see Hereditary, you know, the Ari Aster film. And yeah, I mean, people say it's like one of the scariest movies they've ever seen, like on par with The Exorcist. And it is scary. I don't think it's the scariest one I've ever seen, but it's the only horror movie I've ever seen where I started crying in the middle of the theater and I could not stop because it wasn't because of the of the violence or the gore because there was none at that point in the movie it was the feelings that the movie was bringing out in me it was the things I was remembering and associating with it and processing as I'm watching this movie and I just started I just cried and cried and cried and it was cathartic so I think there's a lot of that I mean any horror movie does that and a lot of I mean it's just fun too like I'm not gonna say like I feel things Halloween Kills comes out. I'm not going to feel things except go Jamie Lee Curtis, go. But <laughs> right. I'm just, but even that is like an empowerment thing, right? So maybe you feel a little, you're feeling unempowered and this empowers you. Um, but it's just a way for you to process trauma in a healthy way to me. I mean, maybe I'm not a psychologist or trained in any of that, but I feel like that's how I feel when I watch them. So I'm probably right. <laughs> I No, I think you're right. And I, I and I think... Like you were saying, a lot of people came out of World War One also disfigured. It was yeah. really one of the first times we're seeing real extreme disfigurement. And so a character like the monster in Frankenstein probably rings more true in, a, in an odd way to people. The idea of the science, too, right? I mean, yeah. like, if you think about the advancements in science... Um, and knowledge of things that are happening. I mean, galvanization is a big thing and, you know, electricity is huge in Frankenstein and it, that's like, that's kind of a luxury up until not that long ago for a lot of people. So, and even now in the world, there's a lot of people that don't have electricity. So that's, you know, new technology is scary for people. Change is scary for people. Um, And then there's always the idea of like messing around with things that you can't control and shouldn't mess around with. And that's what a lot of these old timey horror movies really talk to us about about, and I think we also all have a sort of hidden desire to be invisible at times in our lives and and what we would do with that invisibility whether it be good or bad um I think that's that's the fun part yeah the the movie where before he becomes real murdery you know he starts off by just messing with people like knocking people's hats off and he has a lot of fun like going through the village and making people think there's a ghost or whatever. And he's laughing about that. And the tricks start to get more cruel and more cruel and more cruel as his, you know, he deteriorates into this mad state. And that's really, Claude Rains just plays that perfectly. At first, he's just this scientist, really smart guy trying to find the cure. And then he starts little by little to enjoy this. And, and that's like, the perfect evolution of like the way you know these psychopaths or serial killers work right it's like 
they escalate and escalate and escalate. And you see that without it being like gory. It's, it's just, it starts off funny and then it's not funny anymore when he's murdering people. Although I never felt like very much sympathy for any of the people he murders. And then I'm like, yeah, I mean, they were kind of annoying. So I, I kind of see where you're coming from, dude. But, um, it's just, it's just fun to watch him, him go from that to that, go from, you know, nerdy science guy to, you know, bad. And that's the difference between this movie and the mo- more modern takes on this. I don't know if you've seen Hollow Man by, with Kevin Bacon, which is, it's not a remake of this, but it's a similar, you know, invisible dude concept. And then they, they just did a remake, The Invisible Man, but it has, a, it stars Elizabeth Moss. Or yeah. Moss. Yeah. And, um. I did not, okay, I like it from a standpoint of the effects are awesome. I mean, like, it's really creepy. But the concept of the guy, the villain being a real villain, and it's not really from the invisible man's perspective. He's like an abusive husband. I get it. It's a fresh take on it. Elizabeth Moss figures stuff out and kicks butt or whatever. I just didn't enjoy that aspect of it. If I compare the, the old version and the new one, the old version is infinitely superior in my mind because just the characters are better and the concept is better and i mean the special effects even really like it didn't the brand new special effects do nothing for me if your characters are crap so right and i must say i'm incomparable i really like i actually liked the scene gloria stewart is not in it a lot but she has a nice scene with claude rains um and what I liked about it is, because at this point, he has begun his descent into madness. He's not at the point that he's going to get to, but it's begun. And when she visits him, it's almost like she's able to pull him out of it for a little bit. Like you sort of get a glimpse of what, of who he may have been prior to this. You know, it's like, I almost wonder if she had stayed, if she could have, probably not because he was going to descend into madness either way, but I just felt like, in a way, she sort of stopped it for a little bit, like he was able to really be himself with her. What did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, like, his whole reason for wanting me, he he ditches her, right? He takes the serum and things go awry but he he knows he can't go back to her until he's figured it out and cured himself and as he descends into the not being able to cure himself he can't he can't go back and admit he was he made a mistake like his his ego won't let him admit that he screwed up i messed up this experiment and now i'm screwed so he doesn't he doesn't want to admit that but when he's in that scene with her it's like okay we can get through this it's gonna be all right and then it isn't you know it's fun (laughs) it's not all right (laughs) and it won't be right and I really like that uh you know I feel like in all three of James Whale's horror movies there's a really fun added level of camp to it yeah that he just there's just like a flair to them that the others somewhat lack and I think you know, like you were saying, he goes through the town and just makes, you know, messes with people and has fun and has that maniacal, <laughs> maniacal laugh that actually cracks me up. I just find it hilarious. Yeah, I mean, uh, Wales, he's in touch with this 
horror as an art form. You know, it's early on in making talkie films, but he's in touch with it much more than, um, I don't know, you know, Dracula, we're not really talking about that, but Browning takes a lot of crap for Dracula being flat and not being as, you know, fully fleshed out a movie. The first part of Dracula where um, Harker's going through the Carpathians and the Borgo Pass is one of my favorite openings of any movie ever made. And it's great. Then after that, it's just kind of all weird atmosphere and no substance, um, other than Bela Lugosi's awesome. So, like, I just summed up Dracula for you if you didn't know it. But, I mean, <laughs> that, the first part of any Dracula film about going to Dracula's castle and, like, this is not going to end well is always my favorite part, and specifically in this movie. But that's where Browning just didn't get it. Like he, And he's not even the director who can't do things like that because, I mean, he did Freaks, and I love that movie. Um Oh, yeah, I love freaks. It's a whole nother, I mean, that's horror, and I don't find it exploitative. I feel it's, you know, he had, he was, he was a circus dude. He, I don't think he's being awful to anybody, but that's a horror movie, and it's awesome. Um, It was ahead of its time, because it really was not well received when it first came out. But he, he knew how to make movies. It's just like, I think he lost interest with Dracula. And a lot of, when you read the histories of making of Dracula, they'll say that, that he lost interest halfway through. And that's why the movie looks the way it does. The first part of it's great. The second part of it's like, mm, meh, whatever. So, and, you know, but moving on from that to the movies we're talking about, I mean, that's where Whale, nothing in the three movies that Whale did ever lets you down. I mean, Dracula, or not Dracula, Frankenstein's the weakest of all the three, in my opinion, but it's still a great movie. Yeah. It's still a smash hit. It's still, you know, iconic. And Boris Karloff is a bonafide star. So, you know, he he is horror to me. Oh, yeah. No, I, I love Frankenstein, but I do love Bride of Frankenstein more. Yes. And Invisible Man... It's, I feel like it's, it really touches a lot of genres. I mean, it definitely touches sci-fi. It definitely touches horror, certainly. But there's also, it's a, for that time, it's a spectacle. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of like the, the Marvel movies now, then. I mean, the, as we were talking about the special effects, I mean, they had things flying all over the place and the, that train the train crash is like quite shocking even now and phenomenal. I feel like it's a little, I love Invisible Man for the special effects and for Claude Rains. I think it's a little light plot wise, but, but it's okay. Like it doesn't have to, it's it's fine that it is because I feel like it's really I actually watched this this time around I watched it with the commentary so I because I've seen it so many times I didn't need to hear the dialogue and it was really actually nice to watch it with the with the commentary because it was not it was in a way like watching a silent film and you I realized how well this movie stands up. It could have been a silent film because it's so visual. It really tells a very visual story. Yeah, and, and I mean, and that's really important, the visualness of the story, because you can't see the villain. Um, the irony. Even more, you know, think about going to a movie theater at this time 
Or think about, you know, when you saw a movie that you really couldn't tell it was fake. In 1931, 1933, I... They wouldn't be able to tell that stuff was fake. Like they're gonna, their minds are gonna be blown. Like my mind was blown in like 1992 when I saw Jurassic Park for the first time. Right. You know, when you see those dinosaurs and they literally look real and they still look real today, it blows your mind. You know, uh, when people saw Star Wars and see like the space fights for the first time and the lightsabers and all this, it's just something that you never forget when you see that. So like. The modern audience today, are you going to watch some of these movies and be like, oh, I see the bat on the string there. That's super cool. Yeah, but like in 1931, you'd never seen anything like that. You know, yeah. you can't judge You can't judge these movies on today's standards of things because it's not the same. It's not apples to apples, right? You're comparing two different things. But put yourself in the mind of someone who's never seen anything like that before and doesn't even know how to even make that happen at all. And yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And the ingenuity of those special effects, the people, the brilliance of the people that thought up the special effects for the Invisible Man, it can't be, it can't be talked about enough to me. Like, I, I don't know how you come up with that stuff. It's crazy. And I love the, actually, the, the end, with the way that they figure out to catch him with the snow. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, inge- it really is ingenious. Yeah, and that's the part of the fun of it. How do you stop a force that you can't see? And it's almost like, you know, death, right? You can't see death. It's coming for you, but you can't see it. How do you stop it? I mean, you can't, but I think that that's a lot. And then that's horror. How do I stop death? Death is coming for me. In The Invisible Man, it's a crazy, invisible dude, right? Right. In Halloween, it's um, Michael Myers with, you know, a, a kitchen knife. Right. Right. So it just it, death is coming for you in these horror movies, and that's we're examining that. We're thinking about our own death. It's scary for people, but it's a good way for you to process it. You have to think about it and, and deal with it, right? So that's what the fun of it is. Jumping ahead, almost ten years. Actually, it's, I think it's about eight years to nineteen forty-one, and we have the Wolfman, and this is directed by George Wagoner with a script by Kurt Siodmak, who is not to be confused with his brother, Robert Siodmak, who's the very prominent noir director. Um, Kurt Siodmak writes a script that really becomes the basis of pretty much every werewolf movie that comes after that. And there had been a werewolf movie before The Wolfman. Uh, Werewolf of London, I believe it was called. Yep. And, but it really didn't have, it didn't have what the Wolfman had. I mean, the Wolfman really just took that and ran with it. And we owe a lot of that to Kurt Siodmak and to Jack Pierce, the makeup artist, who did the makeup, who he had actually, he had worked on the first Wolf, uh, Werewolf of London movie, but the the actor Hall, John Hall, I believe his name is, um, he he didn't want his face. He wanted his face to be seen, and so he really couldn't do the level of makeup that he had wanted to do. And then when he gets the Wolfman, it's like this is his second chance, and he just goes all out and you know puts just puts the pedal to the metal. And and really does an outstanding makeup job. 
uh, on Lon Chaney Jr., who is the son of, of Lon Chaney, uh, the man of a thousand faces. And so the Wolfman stars Lon Chaney Jr. and Claude Rains. Yes, you're getting a two for a BOGO on Claude Rains. Exactly. We got Claude Rains, who I can only imagine who the mother was. <laughs> because Claude Rains does, is about three foot two, and, and, and Lon Chaney Jr. is about 10 foot 11. So I don't know who the mother was, but that would be interesting. Um, and we also have. Uh, Evelyn Anchors as the the love interest, who I actually quite enjoyed, and uh, we also have supporting but it, but important roles filled by Ralph Bellamy, Bella Lugosi, and Maria Uspenskaya, who's just she's a character all on her own. So this uh, is not one of your favorite movies. T- tell me why. So, okay. I love, <laughs> I love the Wolfman. I don't love Lon Chaney Jr. Um, I, I love the concept of it. So you start off in, you know, the English countryside and it's got creepy atmosphere. Um, I think it's supposed to be set in Wales. Is it? Yeah. In the, yeah. So it's creepy, it's, you know, you're immediately in a different location, so you're like, okay, this is in the country, and these people are superstitious, and all this stuff, and, you know, I like the concept of it, the makeup is great, I mean, it's my favorite werewolf makeup, because you can still see the dude's face, and you can still see Longin, he can act through that makeup, right. which is important, right, it's very much like Boris Karloff's makeup, it's iconic, um, and it had to have been terrible to put that on. I can only imagine. Like, getting hair put on you anyway is super awful, and any makeup is not super fun. But he had all this makeup on, um, but it, it looks good. You know, the only criticism I would have of that, and I was watching it earlier this week, is um, when he first starts his werewolf transformation, and he's in, like, his undershirt, and he's, the hair starts sprouting up and everything. And then when you see the wolfman the next time he's wearing the like his wolfman outfit or whatever like it's like he changed clothes I'm like <laughs> yes how do you know to put on those how do you know to put on his like werewolf and clothes i that's his werewolf and outfit because he and they, they do it because it's dark and they didn't they probably didn't want to show a bunch of hair because that's expensive so i only have to make up his hands and his feet and his face it's great but the makeup is awesome um the concept of the curse is awesome and the gypsies are awesome like the um the old lady gypsy, she's amazing in this movie. Bella Lugosi is good in this movie, too. Um, he plays the guy who bites Lon Chaney Jr. and causes him to be a werewolf. So I love the I love the plot. Um, I just don't love Lon Chaney Jr. I I find him super creepy, and I know we, we talked about this before. You're like, yeah, but he's predatory or whatever. He He's, like, looking through his dad's telescope, and he sees the girl in the shop or actually in her bedroom above the shop and he is you know creeping on her and then he goes to the shop and tries to hit on her and the way he hits on her is icky it's just it is i i definitely agree i would say that um like you had said earlier it's hard to 
compare that, like to see that from 2021 perspective? Sure. Like, I don't think that was as creepy in the 40s. No, um, and in the hands of a different actor, I might have found it. I mean, it's just the way he delivers it is, is real weird. And he has, they always explain him sounding the way he does, like he's been living in America and working. He's not a rich English lord lordling he's actually been working out in america doing you know manual labor that's why he's like this and that's fine like you can explain that all day long they do that kind of in the remake too like they explain why he's benicio del toro and not like you know whoever but it's just i just don't think he has the acting chops to carry that off a different actor might have had that but they cast him because his dad was Lon Chaney Jr. and they can sell that. I respect that. That's fine. I probably would have gone to see that in 1941 too and said, "Oh yeah, I love Phantom of the Opera. I totally want to see this." Well, so I think that, I think there are a few reasons. He had just done Of Mice and Men in 1939 with Burgess Meredith, which was a breakout role for him. So, he was sort of unknown, but not really. He was yeah. sort of on that cusp and I thought it was interesting. I don't know if I'd noticed it before, but in the credits, he's not Lon Chaney Jr. He's Lon Chaney. Yep. They didn't add the junior. What I like about it, specifically him, is he's he's a stranger in a strange land. Even though, yes, he grew technically was born there and grew up there for a little while, he's not lived there for like 20 years. So this whole place is foreign to him. The he's coming, he's only coming back because his brother has died and he now has to, you know, take the mantle of of Lord, you know, uh, of Lord Talbot. And he's really not prepared for that. I mean, I feel like I, I don't think you're wrong in terms of awkwardness, but I think I feel like that was intentional. I feel like he is awkward in that in that world and in those in among those people, and he's been in the America. They they're they're pro- very provincial, to, from from his perspective. Yes. But I also think that's a little bit of the failing a failing of the movie because they really didn't know what direction to go in. In the beginning, he was not going to be his father, his son. He was going to just be like some random guy from the U.S. who was coming to set up a telescope who gets bit by a wolf and becomes a wolf man. So he initially was not supposed to be related to him. And actually, Kurt Siodmak said, like, you couldn't pick worst casting for a lord, for an English lord. Like, that's not, he's not an English lord. But I think they, when they cast him, he wasn't going to be. He was going to be like an American, you know, uh, an American who comes there and helps him. Yeah. On the plus side to him, too, he's a huge dude. Like, I don't know how big he actually was in real life, but he looks big in that movie. Maybe it's because he's right next to Claude Rains, who looks small. But they they actually say in the movie, like, well, he's a big, strong guy. And I think that's what you want for that imposing physical monster. You know, Dracula is one kind of monster, and Frankenstein's monster is a different kind of monster. And this one, you want that menacing rage feel to him. So him being bigger and stronger and able to carry off that very physical horror is important so he i think he does well at that and he does he gets better as the movie goes on as he really embraces like the doomed cursed part of this 
he does get better. He get his acting is better. He handles that emotion better. Um, it's just the beginning of it. I get icked out by him. Yeah. Oh, I and I totally, I totally see that. I do think that what what differentiates Wolf the Wolfman. A, it doesn't have any source material like The Invisible Man comes from a novel. So they really had to start from scratch in a way with The Wolfman in terms of creating the mythology and how this happens and all of that. And he's one of the few monsters who does not want to be a monster. He does He's really fighting against it. He, he spends... He, and he actually reprises this role in like four other movies. But in every movie, and particularly this one, he's fighting against it. He doesn't want this. And I think that there's a, there's a sort of a sadness and a vulnerability that is touching in a, in a large man like that. I think he was like 6'2". He really was a big guy. But I felt like he's this big imposing character who's actually really sad and vulnerable. I feel like he 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 does that. He accomplishes that. Yeah, like I said at the end of it, I agree with you. I think he 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 plays that well. And it is the template for a lot I mean, werewolf movies, there's tons and tons of them. A lot of them play on this cursed idea that, you know, when you become the werewolf, like you don't remember anything. And then some of them play on the idea that like, okay, you're just a bad person and you do remember everything and you like killing people. But, you know, when he becomes a werewolf, he he sees the victim, they see, you know, when he sees the pentagram on, you know, Gwen's hand, he knows he's going to kill her. He doesn't want to hurt her. So no. Werewolves aren't generally bad people in most movie versions of them. I mean, the only one that can, the, the howling, that's, they're evil werewolves. Um, but, you know, an American werewolf in London, which is my absolute favorite werewolf movie of all time, he doesn't want to be a werewolf. He's cursed. And, yeah. And that's, you know the template here too even a man who's pure of heart and says his prayers by night can become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright that's amazing that's a the, one you know one of the greatest little horror poems ever um so he's he's not a bad guy but the beast within you know and that's that's what werewolf that's why werewolves are fun to me that's the kind of werewolves i write they don't remember you know going on their murderous rampages um, yeah. After you know, afterward, and they feel bad about it. Maybe some of them don't feel so bad about it. But. And that was also one of the issues that they were dealing with was they weren't sure, and it and it is mentioned in the movie. They weren't sure if he was actually going to be, because if you backtracking, if you notice, Bela Lugosi is like a four legged wolf. Like he's not a wolf man. He becomes a wolf, and so right. a lot of people have said, well, why is he a full wolf and and Lon Chaney Jr. is a wolf man well because they didn't know they honestly didn't know what which direction they were going to go if he was going to actually turn into a wolf a werewolf or as Claude Rains suggests it's all in your mind and so there's that and I think that you know he wrestles with that I feel like it's a movie that has a lot of deals with a lot of metaphor which horror movies do in general, I think, yep, but I think absolutely. the Wolfman really, um, you know, depending on who you are and what you're doing, where you know where you are in your life, you see a lot of different things. Uh, it's been seen as sort of a 
metaphor for puberty, for becoming a, a grown up. It was also seen, and I had not, I, I found this out in my research, which I had not known. It was also seen as a metaphor for Nazis. That, because Kurt Siodmak was uh, a German Jew who escaped Germany. And, and so he's writing this script about, about someone who's basically a good person and then becomes, through no fault of his own in a way, a horrible person and someone who kills the people he loves. And, and someone mentioned that, um, that they thought they, now, you know, this is all sort of, you know, modern conjecture after the fact, but it is interesting that the whole idea of like a star on someone represents that they're going to die. Yes. That that was directly connected to the Holocaust and, you know, marking someone with, yes, it's a pentagram, but, you know, it looks like a star. Um, it does, yeah. And marking someone for death by putting, by having a star on them. I think you could, you could definitely see that angle but you could see a lot of things you could definitely see teenage puberty you could see just um the decline uh, uh, you know dealing with mental illness and people saying oh throw him in a that that the one guy was like oh he needs to be in a mental institution and someone else saying he just needs rest and and people not believing him and him saying there's something wrong with me and people not really listening to him and so there's a lot of, I think that there's a lot in that movie that you can speculate and and draw on, uh, you know, depending on who you are and what you want to what you want to see, what you come away with it, uh, come away from it with, um, which I think makes it really just just potent. <laughs> yeah, it's tragic. He's not. You're right. He's not a bad guy. He just is in a bad situation he's sick and he needs help but nobody knows how to help him except to beat him to death with a silver stick you know there's nothing else to be done for him and that's the tragedy of the werewolf there's no cure except death for him so i mean that's and you're right like you can see so many things i mean like when you say the word lunatic lunar is moon werewolf moon i mean you can make all those connections and um for every kind of thing you want to think about with werewolves there's a werewolf movie in the genre to think about it even nazi werewolves i've seen that too so (laughs) a couple of them actually um but the concept of the puberty ginger snaps is a great werewolf movie that talks you know that definitely deals with all that sexuality and you know all that stuff so it's it's really interesting um and i mean werewolves are my favorite monster i write them i read them i watch them voraciously so I mean, I I like my vampires too, but you know they don't hold a candle to me to the werewolves for the interest of them and and how you can play that so many different ways. Is it a bad person? I mean, in a lot in some of the lore for werewolves, um, you actually make a pact with the devil and you put on a devil salve and intentionally become a werewolf. Like you know what you're doing and you like going around and killing people because the devil literally made you do it. You sell your soul to the devil for that, just like kind of witches. There's the all, you know, the thing about witches selling their souls to the devil right. too, and riding on brooms. So like, there's that whole aspect of it. I I don't necessarily prefer those kind of werewolf movies. I like the cursed aspect because it it brings in that idea of 
um, the ticking time bomb, and if you got locked up in the same room with a werewolf, you would be in serious trouble. Like, how are you going to get out of that? So I prefer that, and I prefer this tragic figure of, I don't want to do bad things, but I'm going to do bad things. And then right. the bad things are really fun to watch. Because one thing, when I rewatch this movie, they don't really hold back with the violence in it for the time. So no, they don't. In, in Dracula, all the deaths happen off screen. And, um, you know, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, I mean, yeah, they throw a little girl in the lake and the monster kind of goes off, but it's really not that bad. But when you get to the wolf man, he actually throttles people to death and bites them. You can, I mean, he grabs um, the grave the grave digger and actually, like, you know, rips his throat out for yeah. 1941. I mean, you don't see any blood, but he's obviously biting him in the throat and ripping his throat out. So, again... Put yourself in the position of somebody who's never seen anything like that before on film, and you'd be shocked and amazed at what you were watching. So what is your theory as to why, because supposedly Bela Lugosi's werewolf has been under control this whole time for the most part, why do you think he changes at that in that scene? What, what do you think, why, why do you think that happens? Why does Lugosi change? Um... I don't know if he was under control. I mean, it seems like it, but I don't know enough about that backstory to know why he would be under control other than, you know, the the gypsy, the old gypsy woman seems to have some sort of power um, where she... His is, you know, she's his mom. Yeah, she mutters the, you know, my son, the tears flow into the river, kind of, and that calms him down. It's like something about her magic does that. So maybe there was more of that going on. Um... But maybe it's just a touch of destiny, right? You know, you got to have an inciting incident in a movie. And, you know, he's, he's just at the point where this is too many bad things are in this particular. I got three victims and I can't really hold myself back anymore. Like, you got to go. You know, why would you come out here at night anyway? They've obviously done something stupid. Like, okay, let's go into the woods at night and, like, get our fortunes read. They don't think anything bad's going to happen to them, but that's every horror movie, right? So right. they make a bad choice, and they find out that they made a bad choice. Well, bad I, things happen. You know, I heard a theory that one of the reasons he changes, or the reason he changes, is because the friend because he gives that he gives the the fortune telling uh his his to the to uh evil and anchor's friend yeah uh who he ends up killing that she goes in there with wolfsbane she does i did forget that but yes she does go in there and he throws it down like he smells it and throws it down yeah that's a good pickup i i did notice the wolfsbane this last time i watched it i don't think i noticed that the first time i watched it but um that's a good use of wolfsbane i guess um Usually, I use it in my books as like a deterrent to werewolves, so it would ha- it would actually weaken him. But I mean, I made that up, so right. Take that for what you will. It's a good explanation as any, I guess. It's it's actually pretty interesting. And actually, I heard that that dog that was like a German Shepherd that they yeah. used. That Lon Chaney actually ended up adopting that dog <laughs> after the movie. And that was like his buddy for like the rest of his life, for the rest of the dog's life, at least. That's kind of nice. Yeah, I thought that was kind of sweet. And he took that dog everywhere. Like when he was doing a movie, that dog was on set with him. (laughs) This dog is Bella Lugosi as a werewolf. Exactly, exactly. But no, I think 
I really enjoyed, I mean, I enjoyed both of them, but I feel like I really enjoyed The Wolfman this time around on, on a, on, on I guess, a deeper level, you know, and, and, you know, the relationship that he has with his father. I mean, there's always a love interest. You can't, you can't have them. It's hard to do a horror movie without a love interest, but this, I feel this film is really about his relationship with his father. For sure. I mean, that's the turning point. Um, you know, Claude Rains leaves him locked up. Of course he gets out, but like, that's why he goes back. Like he's, that's why Claude Rains is in the woods is he's going back to check because he's like, what if he does turn into a werewolf? I, I don't want to leave him by himself. So that's where he encounters him as he's, broken out and it's really it's a tragic story for really all three i mean clearly for the wolfman but also his father has to deal with the fact that he's killed his son yeah he's lost his whole family he's lost his whole family he's killed his son after not listening to him and believing him which is another sort of metaphor there but for for parents and children you should listen to your children when they tell you something's wrong instead of just and he's not like he's not mean to him he just doesn't believe him he's just saying it's in your head um, there's no such thing as werewolves you're fine except that they are in a town where everyone seems to believe that there are werewolves and everyone knows that poem yeah, they all do seem to know that poem. It's like uh, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall to them. You're like, yeah, everybody knows that poem. Yeah, yeah. So so it's interesting that he's, because he is actually, again, we have a man of science. Yep. Yeah, they make a point of that. He's like won science awards and he's, you know, he loves his telescope and he's super into, you know, the new things and he wants his son to take their family into the next, you know, generation and... He's looking towards the future, and then you've got this primal monster that screws everything up, right? There's right. No, nobody's fault. Like, there's not an evil person in this movie. Nobody's evil. No. They're, they're in a bad place. They're in a bad situation. And it's how you get through it and deal with it, or not. Right. It's just full of great, I mean, iconic things. I mean, that, um, the silver, the silver wolf-handled cane, you see that in, um... In the remake, and, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the remake of The Invisible Man, and I recently watched the remake of this, too, that stars um, Benicio Del Toro, and I love that movie. I, I think it took a lot of flack, but it's super gory, violent werewolf goodness, and I love the werewolves. I like my werewolves to look um, very human but still wolfy. Like, yeah. I don't want them to look like a wolf, and I don't necessarily want them to look like... Um, a gigantic wolf that walks on two legs. I want them to look like a terrible creature mishmash of a wolf and a person. Like, still maintaining that person's face with wolfy features, but not, like, with a long snout and all that. Enjoy the aesthetic of that better. Yeah. With, with great claws and great fangs and, you know... I just, I like that movie a lot. The atmosphere is awesome. I, I love, um, I know Benicio Del Toro in it. It's good, violent, fun, werewolf goodness. Um, so I'm not sure like what people hate so much about it. Cause it's basically the exact same plot as the Wolfman. I mean, it's not really, I mean, it's even the same character names. Yeah. So. And what did you think of um, Jack Nicholson's movie, Wolf? 
it's a fun movie too. Um, I it's been a while since I've seen that one. I've seen it several times, but it's also a, a, t- a tale about you know somebody embracing like the monster within them, and he does it with relish as he goes through that movie. Um, but there's no innocence with Jack Nicholson. He has I don't think he has any ability to portray that in any role he's ever played in. <laughs> yes. So I miss that vulnerability and I miss that um I miss that he I always kind of believe he's a little bit bad right like right eh, he's probably a little bit bad you know you, you don't really think about Benicio del Toro being very bad or even Lon Chaney Jr. and the Wolfman is like he's not bad he's just a big doof guy like he's not bad but you know Jack Nicholson there's a little bit of bad in there and he can't help it that's just him um, it probably works in that movie because it's they're publishing, right? He's a publisher and yeah. editor for books. Yeah. So I I I understand how that can be. Um, so, <laughs> and there's a lot more sexuality in that movie. And yeah. That's important to that movie, whereas the sexuality is not nearly in, as important in The Wolfman um, or in the remake of it or in American Werewolf in London. It's not. I mean, there's a romance, but the sexual aspect of the animal um, is not as prevalent in those movies as it is in Wolf or um, Cursed, the, the Wes Craven werewolf movie. Yeah. That's all about sex. Um, so it's definitely a different kind of werewolf movie. And even The Howling. The Howling is definitely about sex. So um, just it's a different aspect of it. And if you can enjoy all of them or you can enjoy one or two of them, it, it's really your preference. I enjoy all of them, but for at different times. I don't, I don't like them all mixed up in the same movie. So you would definitely recommend both of these, The Wolfman and The Invisible Man. And you would say that these are two of the most significant universal horror movies in terms of the influ- influence that they had on others? Or, or, or no? What would you... Um, so I think quality-wise... The Invisible Man is very high quality. People don't remember it as much because it came at a time when they were, you know, visually they were watching things like The Bride of Frankenstein, which is the look of that of those characters is so iconic. I don't think you can get away from it. The look of Bela Lugosi as Dracula is very iconic. You don't really think about The Invisible Man story too much, but if you watch that movie, you'll find it's a better movie than all the rest of them. It's more fun to watch. Yeah. And the special effects are great. So high quality, I would say, and in my article in the magazine, I kind of rank these as far as um, quality and then influence, right? So I think it's very high quality, but maybe medium influence. I think The Wolfman's more influential, but I thought it was lower quality. Although, given it another watch around when I watched it this last time, I kind of, I might have bumped it up a little bit on the scale, but there's always got to be a winner and a loser. So The Wolfman ends up being the loser. I'm sorry. <laughs> As much as I love werewolves, werewolves are my absolute favorite. But um, I just feel like visually um, and and acting-wise, it's just not quite as good as the rest of them. But, you know, still very close to my heart. I mean, we're talking, like, infinitesimal different. Like, okay, I'm still going to watch all of them. But if I really am objective about it, I don't think it's quite as good of a movie as the other ones. It's just... But it, you're right when you say that, like, it's the blueprint for most other werewolf movies after it or some variation and spin on it, for sure. 
for sure. I mean, it, the the idea of the silver bullet, the silver handle, that silver is the only thing that's going to kill them. The idea of the full moon is in there. Um, I mean, we really get... There, there is. You don't get the werewolf movies of today without that one. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And even in, um, you know, if you're talking about influence on other werewolf movies, for sure. Like American Werewolf in London, there are literally Nazi werewolves in American Werewolf in London. Yeah. When, when, when he has the dream, the werewolf, the Nazis come into his house, and they're werewolves. So. Mm. You know, your, your theory about the Nazis and the werewolf analogy, it, it's true. So, <laughs> pretty much confirmed true. And the idea, I mean, I don't know what it is about England and werewolves, but they seem to have a real good time of it in the moors and in rural England. So, um, you know, it's you're right. Like, it's a lot of werewolf movies take their stuff directly from it. And you're going to find variations on how to kill werewolves and do they heal up and... What kind of, uh, you know, do they know what's going on? Do they not? Um, my dog's going to go crazy and bark because you just heard the, uh, <laughs> the doorbell. But we'll, we'll give him a second to calm down here. Um, but yeah, like, it is influential in other werewolf movies. And the idea of werewolves themselves. Yeah, there he goes. Um, he's he's a dire wolf, not a werewolf. He's very dire with him. So. That's hilarious. He's in he's in uh, protection mode. He's fourteen pounds of no help whatsoever, <laughs> but he thinks he is. So. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's it's influential for that. Influential on like the film industry in general. I mean, I'm not the expert on that, but I look back at something like The Bride of Frankenstein, which I I rank number one, um, just for quality and for influence, and it's probably the best one of the bunch. Um, for that reason but the invisible man is my favorite i i mean we didn't talk about the mummy at all because that one's kind of problematic but it's still a fun movie to watch and i and i should say that just so people know your article focuses on a handful of universal the the main universal monsters but there are like 50 some universal (laughs) uh horror movies and they go into the 50s and one of the last ones is, well, maybe it's not even the last, but one of them in the 50s that was really popular was Creature from the Black Lagoon, yes. which is sort of, it's still horror, but it's it's more, which is why you say you didn't meant, you didn't include it. It's, it's, it's a different kind of horror. What, what, how would you classify it? Um, it's creature horror, but creature from uh, more alien type horror. So that's made in like the 1950s when you have the atomic age. Yes. I think you can really you can really see that in the movie. Like, um, of course the the creature is like this prehistoric fish dude. Yeah. Um, but he looks very alien, and um, it plays very much into that 1950s and space race and exploration because they're explorers and all this. Right. It plays more into that than this classic um, monster setup. And he's also, he's also kind of tragic, but he's not as, because he's not human at all. Like there's no humanity to him. It's really hard to get a sense of humanity. You just get a sense of he's a creeper because he's looking for the the cute girl. Right. Um, he, he only cares about her. He's fascinated, so that makes him kind of creepy. But um, 
or maybe tragic. He's lonely. I don't know, but it's a different kind of movie. I definitely, um, I definitely want to touch on those kind of movies and, and more articles. So I'm interested in that whole like Godzilla and the the monsters that come out of the space race and the atomic age. That's a whole nother article. Yeah. Um, but my my next one is going to be probably Hammer horror films because they're so much fun. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. Well, you'll have to come back and talk about those when you've done that. I will. We'll get we'll get a list, one of our famous lists together, and <laughs> yes. we'll start watching and comparing notes. It's, like, it's so much fun. Yes, it is. And I want to thank you f- for suggesting this and 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 getting this together. Uh, this has really been, it's really been fun because I just yes. you know these are just fun for people who want to watch something that is creepy but not really gonna you know give you nightmares um it's not really scary but it's just fun and enjoyable um and 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 for everyone i mean kids can watch it too i you know i think we both really recommend not only these two movies but but all of the the universal horror canon yes if i had a kid i would start them off with 1931 dracula and i'd work my way all the way through horror that's exactly what i would do yeah yeah well we're just gonna have to we're gonna have to do it on our own we will uh, <laughs> I've, I've maybe done it way too many times at this point, I, i'll start over and do it again because it's so much fun all right thank you thank you so much <laughs> Bye.